Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Reese. How you doing, Reese? Hey, I am well. How are you doing? How was your week? I'm okay. And is it a special day for you today? or? Well, it was this week. It was Thursday. I'm officially a year older. Okay. <laughs> Drop one of the uh, bombs for me, as Charlamagne was <laughs> Like, I'll try to find a Jamaican air horn. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so it's been a good birthday week. Okay, great. And we are recording on Saturday, October the 7th, and you will be listening for the first time on Sunday, October the 8th, and we'll be rebroadcasting on Monday, October the 9th at 11 a.m. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you had a great birthday, Reese. I hope the party keeps going for Libra season. Yeah, you know how we do. It was way- weird because I was in New York last week um, for the big flood. And I was like, oh, my gosh, look at the homecoming. They they flooded the streets for me. Yeah, and it, it looked like it was going to be the flood part two last night. It was raining a lot. It was raining this morning, but... I don't think it'll be as bad as it was last time. That's good. Yeah, but, you know, I say that and then watch something crazy happen. (laughs) Uh, So for this week's episode for the local news, we'll be talking about a concerning rise in tuberculosis cases in New York City. Uh, For national news, we'll be talking about um, the Biden administration picking up construction of a border wall with Mexico. For national news, we'll be discussing um, Kenyan police officers being sent to Haiti. And for a good news story, we'll be talking once again about rats. Rats keep coming up on this program. Uh, I guess they're they're just like us. They're always in the news. Just like us, just trying to get around, just trying to get around. They just try to make it in this world. Everybody's trying to keep them down. But so they've yeah. been officially kept out of a Caribbean island. So I will get started with our local news story. This information comes from Politico. Uh, it's quite lengthy, so I won't read the whole thing. But the title of the article is New York City Struggling to Contain Rising Tuberculosis Cases. Budget cuts and understaffing are delaying the city's ability to handle an increase in tuberculosis patients. And this was written by Maya Kaufman. The understaffed agency charged with monitoring tuberculosis in New York City is struggling to respond to new cases, fueling fears of a resurgence decades after the nation got TB under control. The city has confirmed about 500 cases of active tuberculosis so far this year, an increase of roughly 20% from the same time last year, according to internal preliminary data reviewed by Politico. That rate would make it the worst year in a decade. Uh, And so just in case you're not familiar, I'm going to back up a little bit. This is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and just some general information about TB. Uh, Tuberculosis is caused by germs that are spread 
from person to person through the air. It affects the lungs, but it can also affect other parts of your body like the brain, kidneys, or spine. If you have TB, you can die if you are not treated. Uh, the general symptoms include uh, feelings of sickness or weakness, weight loss, fever, and night sweats. The symptoms of TB disease of the lungs also include coughing, chest pain, and the coughing up of blood. Uh, and the symptoms can vary depending on the parts of the body infected. TB spreads in through the air when someone who has TB disease of the lungs or throat coughs, sneezes, speaks, or sings. The germs can stay in the air for several hours depending on the environment. People who have latent TB are not um, actively spreading it, but if you have TB disease, that means you are infectious. And back to the article, there are worrying long, worryingly long waits for treatments at city-run TB clinics, said three employees of the City Department of Health Bureau of Tuberculosis Control. And matters could grow worse as the weather turns cold, increasing the likelihood TB and other respiratory illnesses may spread. When there are particularly high spikes in TB and other infectious diseases in New York City, that tends to be kind of a bellwether for the rest of the country, said Elizabeth Lovinger, a health policy director at Treatment Action Group, a public health advocacy group with a focus on TB. New York City's situation is concerning but unsurprising to some tuberculosis experts given the widespread disinvestment in efforts to control and eliminate the infectious disease since cases last peaked in the early 1990s. The Bureau of Tuberculosis Control has been hobbled by years of budget cuts and widespread vacancies, leaving it with limited capacity to manage the spread. It's a phenomenon that health officials have repeatedly warned could lead to yet another spike despite a common misconception that TB is no longer a threat in America. Tuberculosis has been relatively scarce in the United States since cases peaked decades ago during the AIDS epidemic, but the situation in the nation's largest city foreshadows a possible resurgence of the disease, still a leading global killer. The disease, which is caused by bacteria, spreads through the air and can be deadly if not treated. Experts predicted an uptick in tuberculosis cases after the COVID-19 pandemic hindered efforts to diagnose and treat cases. That was magnified by the arrival of more than 100,000 migrants in New York City since spring 2022. Migrants are at heightened risk of developing an active TB infection since the disease can spread especially quickly in the kinds of congregate settings where the city is housing them. The city's preliminary 2023 data has surpassed expectations, according to the TB Bureau employees, who were granted anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. The internal figures suggest the city is on pace to exceed last year's 536 newly diagnosed patients, or a rate of 6.1 cases per 100,000 people, already one of the highest in the country. If the current rate persists, this year's case count would be the highest in the city since 2013. The city, meanwhile, has been mum on the rise in cases. 
The city health department declined to make Commissioner Ashwin Vazan or the director of its TB control program, Joseph Brzezinski, available for interviews. Brzezinski told staff not to respond to Politico's inquiries about the city's tuberculosis control efforts, according to a copy of the email sent to the Bureau. Uh, So I'm going to stop there just for the sake of time, but the political article goes on to describe um, issues with budgeting, with severe staffing problems, and um, I was shocked. I had been hearing about a rise in TB, but I was surprised to hear that it's the worst that it's been in 10 years and possibly in decades, and it just seems to um, be worsening. Uh, had you heard about this, or ha- are you familiar with um, issues with TB either here or in other places? No, I hadn't heard about this, which is scary, right? Because they love to keep us um, under wraps. But I didn't know that TB uh, was airborne. I didn't know it was an airborne disease. That's another thing that I was unaware of. Do you know when in life we get the TB vaccine? Is that something we get as kids? Because I don't remember you getting don't it. really. There's a vaccine that that exists, but it's not recommended in the United States. So as far as I'm aware in the U.S., like we don't have a routine uh, vaccine that everyone gets for TB. Um, There are I know that um, people who are not like from other countries, like they'll often be like kind of aggressively screened for TB because it's more common in certain parts of the world. But. I mean, I think that that's kind of a flawed assumption, you know, because you can, my great grandfather died of tuberculosis and I actually, I knew my great grandfather um, and he, that was in New York city. And now that I'm reading, I'm like, damn, maybe that lines up kind of with the timeline of when they're saying that it was really last really bad because that was in the nineties when he had it. And, um, you can have tuberculosis and it can be latent in you for years. Okay. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was about to say that I think I was trying to figure out if I had gotten it in one of my trips to Africa that, you know, I believe I might've received that one. Um, But also the effects of that vaccine. I remember feeling like, you know, I had to take a day off of work because it was like serious, but also I remember it being also very expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the times after that, I believe they tested me to see if I had immunity. So that's why I was trying to figure out when and where or if and how. But um, that's crazy that you know someone who was actually affected by it. Because sometimes we'd be assuming that these illnesses are so far back in life. And really, this stuff is happening in other places all the time. It is, but it's also happening here. Like right? I don't know if you know that story of, um, where was it? It was in the Pacific Northwest. And this woman had active tuberculosis and she refused treatment. This was earlier in the year, like earlier in the summer. It was in oh, Washington God. state. Don't you know this woman, girl, she was told she had to take treatment. She had to isolate. She went to the casino. She oh was goodness. on bus. She was going every damn where. And it took her, it took them, I feel, I want to say months or at least a month. But she was gallivanting around everywhere, not a care in the world. Like, I'm not going to stop living my life. And who knows how many people she infected. Right. You know what I'm saying? And she was a a U.S. of an American. So sometimes I get a little, like, I understand that, yes, there are places in the world where it's more, 
prevalent that we are mm-hmm. aware of and mm-hmm. that you know people coming from places where that's the case on top of that they're also being put in places where they're on top of each other so like you have no space and you're all sharing the same air like i understand that those things are heightened risk factors but i'm like how would you if you're not routinely testing people for this People are walking around coughing with all types of stuff these days, talking about I got the flu or whatever. You don't know what it could be. Or my favorite. It's just my allergies. My allergies or whatever. I'm like, um, are you sure about that? And like people are barely going to the doctor. A lot of times Mm -hmm. they might not even have a doctor or if it's not on their radar for them to be checking you for this. And this is something that can just sit in your body until it's reactivated. We don't really know the the scale of the spread. Also, it's cultural too. Like you know, certain families, you know, it's like, oh, you sick? Okay, well, just you know, drink some tea, lay down, take a couple of days. Like people don't realize the severity of illness sometimes until it gets to a point of no return. Till it gets to a point where it's starting to shut down other systems in your body. And I think with all the things that have happened in the healthcare system over the past few years, there is a serious lack of trust. Um, Mm -hmm. in the world for medical uh, practitioners and any sort of information we receive, you know? So not hearing about this is scary, first of all, because we know how much they've been trying to roll back all of the COVID restrictions and things like that. But for something like this that hasn't surfaced um, in a massive, you know, way before, there's so many people who have never even been exposed to what this is, um, you know, in the history of it and how it can be spread. So anytime they're withholding information, um, I always feel so unsafe. And it also makes me scared to know like all the things that we don't talk about on this show that's out there, you know, and it just seems like it's just every week is something different. But um, we definitely need to stay precautious with our health, um, just in general with everything that's happening. And when I was in New York, I did notice, you know, the increase um, I'm not going to say it was in migrants, but I just noticed some differences in the city in certain areas that could have clearly been a result of that. So I can imagine how, you know, one, if one of them are ill and they don't have any resources whatsoever, they'll never be able to even, you know, get what they need to get healthy. But then it's not just them. It, it could be anyone. So, um, right. you know, yeah, that's that's pretty scary, though. I'm glad that you brought that to the surface because we need to know this stuff. Right. And I just I want to reiterate the fact that tuberculosis is airborne because just like you weren't aware of it, I'm sure a lot of other people don't know that this is something that spreads through the air, not just when someone's coughing, also when they're just speaking. If that is in their lungs, it's coming out on these little bubbles that leave your lungs every time you exhale just from breathing. So, you know, there's, they mentioned in the article that a lot of this COVID stuff and backlash against those precautions, it has other effects as well. Like it's bad enough, the effects that it has on COVID, but also there's many things that spread through the air. So if you're having places like hospitals where people who are sick with all kinds of stuff, people don't want to wear a mask. They don't want it. They want to make it loosey goosey with what the infection controls are. Like that's, what's going to happen. You're going to see an increase in all sorts of stuff just from not using the precautionary principle. Um, And I'm not sure if people are aware of like BSL levels. So a biosafety level number 
tells you like the amount of protection and like the level of seriousness of the protection that you need if you're handling certain uh, microbes in a lab. So tuberculosis, yellow fever, West Nile virus, SARS-CoV-2 or what we call COVID now, those are all biosafety level three, which is pretty high. Like you have to have all types of protection on you if you're handling that in a lab. Don't be loosey-goosey with this stuff out in the real world. Like protect your lungs, get checked out if you can, mask up when you're out in public because we have a lot of stuff that's spreading around. And like we have said in this in the article said it and we said it here we're not always getting the full story until it's already a big problem so you know do what you got to do to look out for yourself and your loved ones because uh, you sadly can't always depend on the people whose job it is to do that to be doing that for you all right so you have been listening to well you are listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn And for our first musical break, this is Pictures of You by The Cure. We'll be right back. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate.
Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now here's Reese with our world news story. All right. So this story comes from an article on CNN.com. The title of the article is Kenya Police to Take on Haiti Criminal Gangs Amid Criticism of Their Human Rights Record. Um, The authors of this article are Nimi Princewell, Stephanie Busari, Manvina Suri, and Jesse Gretner. Concerns over Kenya's human rights records have cast a shadow over a UN decision that gave Kenya the go-ahead to lead an armed multinational force to Haiti amid brutal gang violence in the Caribbean country. For a year, the multinational force, comprising 1,000 Kenyan police officers, sorry, for a year, the multinational force comprising 1,000 Kenyan police personnel is expected to combat criminal gangs responsible for a wave of killings, kidnappings, and rape in Haiti. But human rights groups argue that Kenya's history of human rights abuses must be evaluated. On Tuesday, Amnesty International, Kenya, urged UN member states, human rights organizations, and citizens to thoroughly examine the human rights and humanitarian implications of deploying an armed multinational force to Haiti. And as you all know, this is not the first time in Haiti's history that this has happened. Kenya's police have often been criticized for a violent approach towards containing demonstrations. Dozens of civilians were killed during anti-government protests in the East African country in July this year. The UN expressed concerns at the time about police brutality during the protests in Kenya, adding that up to 23 people may have been killed during the demonstrations. Kenya's foreign minister, Alfred Mutua, dismissed the UN's comments, describing it as inaccurate, but did not provide a figure on the death toll. The Kenya National Civil Society Center has also opposed the deployment of the country's police personnel to Haiti, accusing it of extrajudicial killings. The Kenya Police Service is notorious for its excessive use of force and continues to take the flack to the larger number of extrajudicial killings, and arbitrary execution of protesters during the recent anti-government protests. The organization was quoted by CNN affiliate Citizen Digital. Um, The next part of the article reads, A Collective Moral Duty. Kenyan President William Ruto called the outcome of Monday's vote overdue and a critical instrument that will provide a different footprint in the history of international interventions in Haiti. In a media statement on Tuesday, Ruto said he was delighted that the UNSC Security Council had directly answered his call, citing his recent speech at the United Nations General Assembly regarding the need for a framework of multinational support force in Haiti. Ruto said the decision marks an important moment in the history of global multilateralism and argued that it enables the nations of the world to discharge a collective moral duty of securing justice and security for all peoples of all nations. For us in Kenya, the mission is of special significance and critical urgency. We experience the harrowing brunt of colonialism as well as the long, difficult, and frustrating struggle. In our struggle, we always had friends, true, loyal, and determined friends. The people of Haiti, our dear friends, stand today in need. In our fundamental moral obligation, it is our fundamental moral obligation to be their friend indeed by standing with them, Ruto said. Kenya has in the past played a major role in supporting UN peacekeeping initiatives in the African Union peace missions. A senior Biden administration official said, 
Kenya had demonstrated the capacity to lead international security missions of this type and to adhere to UN human rights and accountability standards. A big gamble. The U.S. has pledged to provide $100 million in direct support for the multinational force in Haiti. However, some in Kenya are skeptical. Political analyst Herman Mayora told CNN that many Kenyans believe that the country's mission to Haiti is an unnecessary risk and a big gamble that's motivated by President Ruto's move to please the international community. Many people believe the president of Kenya is out to please the international community. He is out to be a darling of the West. He has been on a charm offensive to please the outside world, to appear to be an African statesman. Menora, who is the lecturer of the University of Nairobi and the founder of the Nairobi Review said. Menora also expressed concern that the language barrier and the unfamiliar terrain in Haiti might pose a threat to the Kenyan security forces. Haiti speaks French. We don't speak French. They have their unique history. We don't even understand that history. There's a lot of insecurity in Haiti. Gangs are on the loose, guns are everywhere, happy weaponry. What stake does Kenya have to be able to take those chances in a terrain that is foreign and dangerous? It's such a big gamble. So that's the end of that article. Um, there's another article in the New York Times, if you'd like to follow up, um, that kind of talks a little bit about the history of the Kenyan police. The title of that article is Haiti Desperate for Peace Turns to Police Notorious for Violence. So just some more background. Um, I'm not going to read it, but definitely following up that story. Um, and yeah, here we are. It is 2023 and we have, you know, what they're calling multi multinational lateralism or whatever the term was, basically coming in <laughs> to uh, bring order to a nation that uh, they may not understand. And quite frankly, from the article we heard, they don't even speak the language. What do you think? I, it just, it does, it sounds so random to me like that. Yeah. And like most Haitian people speak Creole, like they speak Haitian Creole and like there's people who are like upper class that speak and understand French, but that's even more nuanced because it's not even like if you were taking people from a West African country that has a significant French speaking population, like there would still be a language barrier because that's not the primary language spoken right. uh, by most people in Haiti. But it just, I just am like, I, I, I can't understand it. Like, I don't understand how like this would help in any way. Like I do, as complex as the situation is, like I do understand that the violence is out of control and like people obviously need help, but I'm, frankly, like I'm at a loss for what help would even look like, but bringing in random police and military from other parts of the world that aren't familiar with the terrain, the culture, the language, nothing, like I don't see how that would help. It just seems like it would be kind of throwing more random violence at the problem. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that is kind of like the history of um, Haiti that I, I studied a bit in grad school. Uh, what's interesting about this specific uh, UN mission is that they're not only just including um, 
Kenyan police officers. They're also bringing in a troop from Jamaica and from the Bahamas. They have pledged to also come and be a part of this. And I really just want to know, like, who is the who is this gang they building up like and that you know with all due respect uh to the caribbean islands it just feels very much like oh let's get some people that's similar to them to go in and regulate this country um i don't exactly know what the right answer will be either um which is something that's very challenging in these sort of complex situations but the history of haiti and um you know is complicated and a lot of it has to do with people coming in from the outside to regulate their their government, their uh, mon- money, the way they structured their society. And it has left Haiti in the same position that it's been in, um, arguably, for majority of its existence. So this is problematic uh, to me. One, you know, if there isn't even a mission to try to build some level of um, coalition within Haiti, to partner with this police system. If they're coming in, just kind of, we're going to take over. You got to do it our way. It's going to be the same thing that we've seen before. You know, in previous times, uh, when the UN peacekeepers came in years before, they came and they spread cholera throughout Haiti by defecating in their water sources. And it became a natural, a national disaster um, that may or may not have happened if, if people were not infiltrating this country. So, um, you know, I just feel really bad for Haiti because it just seems like they have a very hard time stabilizing. And every time they do, somebody from the outside is coming in to tell them how to do it. Right. And just quickly, I'm seeing on um, Vox, like they have like a what to know about this that they put together uh, that came out two days ago. And one of the things they mentioned is the person who's um, currently uh, head of the country, Ariel Henry or Ariel Henry, Um, He's taken control of the government after Moise's assassination. But um, according to this article, like outside of the elite and the political class, most people in Haiti don't recognize him as a legitimate leader. And so some of these other countries that are talking about sending help, they do recognize him as the legitimate leader. So there's a concern that whatever forces are coming in from the outside are going to be about serving his agenda and not ordinary Haitians. And also in the same article, it's mentioning that he it's, it's phrased as he Henry Ariel Henry has allowed the gang violence to proliferate to the point that it's cut off Port-au-Prince from the rest of the country. Um, So yeah, like you, these other nations are going to come in and like, I guess, take their lead from whoever is the official head of state. But as we know, like around the world, like leaders are often corrupt or like can be, you know, have all sorts of ulterior motives that are not about helping their own citizens. So who's to say that this aid isn't going to be making things worse? Like from that perspective, it's just really... I really wish maybe this is an issue where it would be good if we we could find someone one day that's like an expert or like really can give us a thorough breakdown because I I feel horrible for the people that are there that are just everyday people being victimized by this, you know, like being kidnapped, extorted, killed, uh, sexually assaulted, everything. But I just... I don't know what the answer would be like to make it stop. It's just, 
it's such a terrible situation. Yeah, it is. And it's complicated when, you know, so many people, children and women are, you know, victims to what's happening and not just children and women, but just in general. Um, it's just really complicated. And, and you know, we can definitely look to speak with someone who may be um, a little bit more prepared to speak on these terms and just kind of talk about these things. Um, but definitely, you know, one thing's for certain countries are sovereign for a reason. You know, our sovereignty is our freedom, our freedom to reflect our culture, our choices and uh, serve our people, do what's best for our community. I just hope that they remember these things as they are approaching uh, this this very complicated and complex issue that's happening in Haiti, that's been going on in Haiti for a long time. And, you know, please say a prayer for Haiti. You know, we are um, in hurricane season approaching it. And we just, you know, that would be the very last thing that any place needs. But it's just been one of those places that has been affected so much by things that they can't control and people from the outside. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of my Haitian brothers and sisters are such good people. They definitely give back. They definitely have family there and always um, showing love for their community. So uh, keep a lookout on this. Please read the other article uh, just to get yourself uh, familiar with some of the things that's happening there. Because before you know it, you know, <laughs> We're going to be talking about the story again in a couple of weeks, and it may be some di different outcomes than what we're talking about today. Right. And can you uh, can you repeat what the other article is? Yes. The other article is in the New York Times. Um, it's called or the title is Haiti Desperate for Peace Turns to Police Notorious for Violence. So there are multiple articles out there right now talking about the deployment um, from the U.N. and the different countries that are a part of it. Um, but, yeah, please just get up on this knowledge because, you know, people don't watch. And then before you know it, Haiti turns into a country that needs passport for its people to come home because of things like this. You know, um, I know I'm speaking extreme, but it's just one of those places in the world that's just always, always um, been at the hands of other people. And I personally take offense to it because, you know, I put myself in their shoes. Like, can you imagine somebody coming into your home telling you what to do and how to run your country? It's got to be so difficult to grow up in that. Um, and to have to live with that and build your family around it. Cause you never know what's going to happen next. Yeah, it's definitely like things in the world are so helter skelter. It's like circumstances can change on a dime. So it's, I'm definitely keeping everyone in Haiti in my thoughts. All right. You are listening to objection to the rule on radio free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is Bill Withers with I Don't Know. We'll be right back. I get a warm, warm summer feeling Walking through the snow Even chilly darkness Has the brightest glow and I just love you so mm. Sometimes I just don't know, no, no I just don't know, I just don't know I just don't know I say that time just seems to pay this wondrous feeling 
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, uh, this information comes from the Associated Press. Um, and this is an article written by Colleen Long. The title is Biden says he had to use Trump era funds for the border wall. Asked if barriers work, he says no. President Joe Biden on Thursday defended his administration's decision to waive 26 federal laws in South Texas to allow for construction of roughly 20 miles of additional border wall, saying he had no choice but to use the Trump era funding for the barrier to stop illegal migration from Mexico. Asked if he thought such walls work, he said flatly, no. The new construction was announced in June, but the funds were appropriated in 2019 before the Democratic president took office. Biden said he tried to get lawmakers to redirect the money, but Congress refused, and the law requires the funding to be used as approved and the construction to be completed in 2023. The money was appropriated for the border wall, Biden said. I can't stop that. Still, the waiving of federal laws for the construction, something also done when Republican Donald Trump was president, raised questions, particularly because Biden condemned border wall spending when he was running for the White House. One of Biden's first decisions as president was to halt the use of emergency funds to build the wall along the southern border and end the national emergency there. The decision comes as the Biden administration is struggling to manage increasing numbers of migrants at the border and spreading out in the larger U.S. Democratic leaders in New York, Chicago, and Washington are asking for federal help to help handle the growing numbers of migrants in their cities. Administration officials on Thursday announced they'd resume deporting migrants back to Venezuela as part of their effort to slow arrivals. The decision was met with immediate criticism from immigrant advocates and Mexico President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who called it a setback. It is a setback because it does not resolve the problem, he said Thursday. Lopez Obrador had frequently praised Biden in the past because he is the first U.S. president in a long time who has not built any walls. The Department of Homeland Security posted the announcement of the latest wall action in the Federal Registry with few details about the construction in Starr County, Texas, part of a busy Border Patrol sector seeing high illegal entry, quote-unquote. 
According to government data, about 245,000 illegal crossings have been recorded so far this budget year in the Rio Grande Valley sector. It is among the busiest for border crossings in the nation. Much of the land along the Rio Grande is subject to erosion and is part of federally protected habitats for plants and animals. A federal project along the river would ordinarily require a series of environmental reviews. Congress gave U.S. immigration authorities the ability to waive those reviews to put up such barriers more quickly. The Biden administration's decision to rush into border wall construction marks a profound failure, said Jonathan Blazer, director of border strategies at the American Civil Liberties Union. On the campaign trail, President Biden put it best when he said that the border wall is not a serious policy solution, and we couldn't agree more. Instead of upholding this promise, the Biden administration is doubling down on the failed policies of the past that have proven wasteful and ineffective. This isn't the first time that a border wall has been constructed under the Biden administration. Homeland Security has also worked on roughly 13 miles in the Rio Grande Valley and another small-scale project to fill small gaps that remain open from prior construction activities in the border wall. But the border wall has been synonymous with Trump's restrictive immigration policies. He said he wanted to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it, then declared a national emergency to fund construction when Congress would not appropriate funds for it. So yeah, this was, um, I felt a confusing read because while I understand what he's, what Biden is claiming about like, oh, the law says it has to be used for this or that. I, I often will be like wondering, well, then what is the purpose of being the president then? Like if everything that you're going to say one thing or go along with one thing, but then your actions are doing something different, like the messaging is confusing. And I think the end of this um, Associated Press article points out that the optics look like you're just doing what your predecessor did. It's, it doesn't, the average person is not going to be thinking about, oh, like, well, it's because of this red tape and it's because of X, Y, and Z. They're going to see you doing something that you said when you were campaigning you would not do. And it looks terrible as far as messaging, as far as optics, as far as going into this new election season. And, you know, that's on top of just the humanitarian issues of building a wall in the first place, on top of the environmental problems with doing it in such protected areas. So just, I think, just sounds like a huge mess. It is a mess. And, you know, Sleepy Joe loves to go back on his promises. Um, As I often say in conversations about this administration, you know, he does what's right in the moment. You know, that's a career politician for you. That's that's how it's designed. It's literally designed to be in the right place at the right time for the right reason. And, you know, um, he's going to follow through on some things that we're happening simply because of what is happening right now, the migrant crisis right now. You know, the reality is for him to actually act on anything in it is what needed to happen. And I think he's thinking about, you know, the reelection and all of that stuff. If he doesn't do anything about this topic in this moment, when we are literally seeing 
what's happening to New York City and, and the surrounding places by the wall, um, then, you know, of course, he's going to lose votes. He's going it, to, it's just, it's all connected. But I'm not surprised at this at all. Um, I think it just took, he waited till now to actually do something. And I think, you know, what some people would say was, oh, if he would have just done that, we wouldn't have this migrant crisis. And that's bullshit too. Because if you are determined to get out of a bad situation, ain't no wall or no sleepy Joe or no ICE officer is going to stop you from trying to get to where you got to go. Um, I think it was, um, um, you know, the way he handled it was very mediocre and it was not presidential. It was kind of like, well, I can't do nothing about that. You can do whatever you want, sir. You have veto power. You have influence. Um, you can literally go there and assess the situation and find other ways to do things in a more civil way that's re- uh, bringing, wreaking less havoc on people and their families. Uh, there's tons you can do, Joe. It's a whole bunch you could do. So that's a cop out. And um, definitely he's moving like this. This is all intentional for him to get ready for this next election. But in, in the meantime, people still crossing seven, eight countries to try to get to freedom. So what are we going to do about that? We need to do something about what's really wrong here. Um, and if they are here, you know, by all means, we have to do something to help them. So the wall is just, to me, semantics and him doing something is to serve people that he had to serve to get where he is today. And we'll see how far he goes with that. But there will be some wall. This is what we do know. It's already started in construction and there will be something, even though that shit ain't gonna work. <laughs> and he's saying it's not gonna work. It's like, uh, this is... Exactly, that's why you confuse. He's trying to confuse you. He's trying to play both ends against the middle. The, the fact that he's waiving all of these federal law, 26 mm-hmm. different laws... The fact that he's basically fast-tracking it. It's like he does not have to do that. That's something he's choosing to do. Exactly. Like I said, there's something you can do that's not this. You know, and I just, I I really hate it. And like, I, you know, I voted my conscience in the last election. I did not vote for Joe Biden. Um, I voted for the Green Party. And I know that like there were people that were, you know, not knowing how I voted, just kind of assuming that I voted for Biden and stuff like that. And like, oh, that, you know, anyone who didn't like, you're like an idiot or whatever. And I'm like, you know, there have been people from the beginning that were saying like, this man is not the savior that some people were making him out to be, or like as progressive as people were making him out to be. Uh, as we said before we were recording, you don't get to be this long in the game in American politics by, you know, being lefty and progressive and all of that. Like he has that staying power because he is very much in the middle and veering to the right and more on the conservative sides of things. It's just not as extreme as what you see in the straight up Republican Party. And I just think the more time drags on, the more those critics were are being proved right by the backtracking, the going back on his campaign promises, the fact that he's, you know, af- after the protests with George Floyd, we're seeing more of these cop cities being built up and people dealing with all types of inhumane treatment with no end in sight. You know, I this is just another example of that to me. He's saying all this, talking all this, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now look at what's happening. 
you know, and it's not going to help him. I don't know if it, the thinking is that if he does this, that that's going to bring people over from voting for Trump or something, but that's not what's going to happen. They're going to see that you're doing what he was doing anyway, and then be more convinced to go with him. You know, it, it's just, I had, my expectations were low, but holy shit, like thing after thing after thing, it's like, flopping, failing, not doing what you promised to do. And I'm just, I'm sick of it and not looking forward to the next election cycle at all. Because it doesn't even seem like we have anyone other than him that's like a serious contender. Yeah. Well, a lot of people in this election, the previous election, they voted for Kamala. That's what they voted for. We can still wonder, where is she, by the way? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? Somewhere she's getting her silk press on. Right? She's making sure all, all her stuff's straight. I know. And it's like, come on, y'all. Like, this is people put a lot of hope into this administration, and it's they've really been letting us down. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways. Well, unfortunately, it ain't nothing new. It's part of the system. And one thing that Sleepy Joe is very good at is political propaganda. He's been in the game so long, he know how to play both ends against the middle. And arguably, those Democrats that's the side of the road are the worst ones. They're the worst ones because they will smile in your face all the time. They're trying to take your place. What they doing? They smile in your face. <laughs> right that's them that's them dims that's the middle of the road dims like oh yeah oh yeah before you know it it's a wall right outside your house yeah i mean we're laughing to keep from crying but like in all seriousness like this is a huge humanitarian crisis it's really you know like i can't i know the mayor our city boy mayor is out here oh you know talking about he's going to survey the situation in Latin America and tell people not to come. And I'm like, you don't, if you're in the situation where you're crossing all types of going through multiple countries with like nothing, starving in all types of danger, a wall is not going to stop you because you're already in such a desperate situation, you know? So there really needs to be serious effort put into like, what are the root problems that are making people have to leave? You know, so if we can start to be serious about addressing that, people would not be taking these risks, but simply putting up barriers and making it more dangerous, you're just going to hurt people and just cause more death. You're not going to stop people from moving. That's what humans do. Exactly. Exactly. So um, you're you're gonna bring us back to our our friends, um, Radis Norviticus. <laughs> what was his name in the Ninja Turtles? Uh, Shredder? No, Shredder was the bad guy. Oh, he was the sensei. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, oh, oh listen. My God. listen. Oh, I was trying to remember. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the culture, man. Oh, his name was Master Splinter. My bad. Like Splinter. I just see. I was close. His name Splinter. I was close. I was close. I, I had a good intention. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I bet you his his peoples probably came from this island. So anyway, this story um, is from the Good News Network. 
The title of the article is Rats Finally Eradicated from Caribbean Island as Huge Nature Reserve Rises in Their Place. And the author is Andy Corblay. Redonda, a Caribbean island of small repute, has undergone a dramatic transformation from a barren wasteland of goats and rats to a pristine, rewilded nesting spot for many seabirds and endangered plants. It's one of many remote islands around the world's seas that, with the helping hand, have rid themselves of invasive animals and plants and returned to supporting the land, water, and air around them. In 2020, World at Large reported that whereas many of the Aichi global targets for protecting biodiversity had failed by their deadline, one, the eradication of invasive species on small islands was a resounding success. At this time, the project in Redonda had already succeeded and local NGOs were advocating for a designation as a nature reserve. Remaining isolated for hundreds of years after being revealed by Columbus, Redonda became a hotspot for the collection of guano uh, or bird drippings, bird droppings for use of fertilizing fields and producing gunpowder. But along with man came domesticated animals, goats and rats in Redonda's case. The rats ate nesting booby and frigated frigate bird eggs, while the goats cleared the small island of vegetation. Without the foliage, nothing held the soil and the rock together, and soon the edges of Redonda began to crumble into the sea, choking the light from the bottom of the marine food web. With the cliff nest destroyed and the uplands haunted by rats, the birds left. The vegetation couldn't grow back, and the goats began to starve to death. Ravonda was a whistling wasteland. In 2016, Antigua, Antigua and Barbuda, the archipelago nation that owns Redondo, launched an eradication campaign that cleared the island of rats. After that, they simply waited. That's all we did. We just removed the species that were not supposed to be there, and within months, we saw the vegetation grow back, the island rebounding said Janella Bradshaw, Redonda Program Coordinator for the Environmental Awareness Group, EAG, an Antiguan NGO leading the project. Up to this date, we haven't planted anything. We haven't reintroduced any species. We just moved the rats and the goats and the land transformed right in front of our eyes. Happily, the 60, 60 goats that were left on the Mile Long Island were spared and instead rounded up by hand, since they were very easy to spot on the island without a single bush or tree, and re relocated to the mainland. After that, a team camped out on the island for two straight months, trapping the poisoning rats, 6,000 of which were found on the island, so many of the workers could hear them scurrying around the tents at night. There have been no recorded rats on the island since 2018, allowing 15 species of seabirds to return and for the Redonda green dragon, a beautiful native lizard, to grow in population by 1300%. Native wow. vegetation, that's crazy. Native vegetation too has experienced a 20-fold recovery, including trees like the ficus. All that charged the Antiguan, all this charged the Antiguan government to create the redundant Redonda Ecosystem Reserve, which will cover 30,000 hectares of land and sea, including the tiny isle, its surrounding seagrass meadows, and a 180-square-kilometer coral reef. So look at that. You know, they trapped wow. the rats, and everything came back to normal. <laughs> oh, man. It's like, where's where are the rats supposed to go? <laughs> they being, being chased to the ends of the earth. 
I'm like, where but, did they let them um, out in New York? What did they do? Yeah. They said we're out of here, and they got they got off at JFK. <laughs> but yeah, um, so yeah, it's now it's a pristine, you know, ecosystem living, and there it goes, you know, them damn rats. I don't know, I don't know, Splinter, what's up with your people? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's, it's that's it, that is like a really encouraging story, though. Like, I, it reminds me last week when um Janet and Matthew were on, and we were talking about the flooding in the in New York. And sometimes, like, these issues, it's like, oh, it's going to cost billions of dollars to change this. And it's like, but there are also simpler things that can be done that do make a real difference in the environment. All right. So thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And for our last song, this is Peter Gabriel, In Your Eyes. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Or rather, you'll hear from us again next week. You won't see us at all. Who you won't hear from is them rats. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye. Solution of all the fruitless searches.